0: Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet.
1: You're about to hear the recording of a live conversation on September 10th, 2020, with former Congresswoman Ileana ross Leighton. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Tesh um, Dele. Welcome to another edition of Tibet Talks. I'm Dengie Gyatso with the International Campaign for Tibet. In today's episode, we'll be focusing on why American support for Tibet continues to be crucial in the context of U.S.-China relations and the upcoming U.S. presidential elections. Our guest today has served almost three decades as a member of Congress, representing diverse areas in South Florida, She was Chairwoman Emeritus of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. She has been a consistent voice for democratic movements in all corners of the globe, starting with her native island of Cuba. Um, She has also been an outspoken supporter of Tibet, including helping lead the effort to award His Holiness the Dalai Lama, the Congressional Gold Medal in 2007, and helping push for the passage of the Reciprocal Access to Tibet bill in 2018. So it's really my honor to welcome former Congresswoman, Ileana Ross-Lehtinen, to our program today. We have heard just a while ago, we may seem to have um, lost the connection there for a second. We have also um, joined by uh, Matteo Makachi who will be moderating today. Yes.
0: Yeah, and actually we had just a session with her, with the Tibetan association, Tibetan American associations in the United States. Uh, we had a webinar to talk about advocacy and in particular about her experience as um, a member of the Cuban American community.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And how her you know, background and experience shaped her advocacy work in Washington, DC.
1: So, I'm sharing some photographs here, Matteo, so you're here also in 2018, um, right? During uh, visit uh, Cordell to Dharamsala. Yes, indeed.
0: Yes, Yes. indeed, Uh, it was with her and also with uh, Congresswoman Claudia Tenney, who's on the left side of his Isolines and uh, a number of staffers from the House uh, Foreign Affairs
1: Committee so here's a wonderful uh, photograph with Thank the Solanus.
2: You. You, and you. here's
1: a photo with...
2: Um, oh my golly! Oh, I love these photos. Oh my <laughs> golly! Um, first of all, I'm so sorry I wasn't on. I, I was waiting. Oh my goodness, look at these photos with Congresswoman Claudia Tenney. Oh my gosh, with Nate uh, of my <laughs> Foreign Affairs staff. Oh, these are just lovely. Oh, my gosh, and look at this with uh, Albuociris' assistant and, uh, oh, my gosh, Mateo, great. This,
1: really, this is where many of us have gone to school, and then we have this photo.
2: Oh, my gosh, this was remarkable. What a wonderful, wonderful experience. And then we had uh, someone from the military who accompanied us. And this is Claudia Tenney of uh, New York. And, of course, the Dalai Lama. Oh, my gosh, I'm in love with these photos. (laughs) What a surprise. You have really surprised me with that. Thank you so much. Wow. Thank you. I am blown away by that. Thank you for contacting me. I would have been patiently awaiting there uh, in the uh, waiting room <laughs> till tomorrow, thinking I did everything all right. But what I should have done is hung up and start up again, right? Okay, now I know.
0: No, yeah, that, that's no worries. But actually, we had a great start with you, you know, commenting on those pictures. And, Beautiful. Uh, this was in 2018, right? I mean, you didn't hear yes. about. Uh, Tencho has already introduced to our audience, you know, our friends, our members, our Tibetan American communities who are watching. So they know a little bit about you and all you have done for Tibet is so huge, we cannot, you know, uh, say a few words. But these pictures are about, like, you know, towards the end of your
2: Yes, this was, my, trip. this was my last trip. This was exactly. my last Codel and I had gotten sick when we had it planned. And I thought, oh no, I won't be able to uh, to visit uh, Dalai Lama at his uh, exiled home, and I was very sad about it. I'm just trying to put this light on. I was very sad that I would miss uh, this opportunity, and I got better. I don't know if it was a sign, but I got better pretty quick, and I was able to go.
0: Yes, but now let's go back a little bit. You know, let's talk to our you know viewers when your interest in Tibet and the Dalai Lama started. You know, you have also a very specific background and we'll get into that a little later, but tell us about when you heard about Tibet, what is your memory of that? You know, and what I you?
2: sympathize and empathize and I saw a lot of the Cuban American exile experience when I heard and read about the Dalai Lama. I had not had the blessed opportunity of meeting him or knowing you, Mateo, or knowing anything about the organization. But I was a teacher, and to me, learning and education and books, and uh, that's something very important. And so I read about the, the Dalai Lama. He's such a revered figure internationally. And I said, I, I want to know a little bit more about him and and, uh, and what happened. And I identified so much with his experience as person to person, not about political philosophies or anything like that, just the experience of a person who had to run from his homeland, the land of his birth, Tibet, to seek refuge somewhere. In this case, for the Dalai Lama, it was India. For me, I was born in Cuba. We had to flee communist aggression and came here to this incredible country, the United States of America. So as an uprooted uh, Cuban with a new homeland, adopted homeland, thank goodness for the United States of America, that exiled and that uprooting and that kind of, you know, you think that you would sever your ties. And I saw in the Dalai Lama somebody who lost his homeland, had to escape, but wanted very much to hang on to his tradition, to the language of his birth. Uh, to uh, everything about his ancestry, everything about his heritage. And that is similar to the Cuban American experience. And that's why here in my community, I'm in Miami, Florida, although I work in D.C. because of COVID, I'm I'm at home. But I tell Cuban American audiences all the time that what we experienced, that's the same thing for the Dalai Lama. Yes, there are differences, but we don't want to get into politics. And I like to ident. I like my my community, the Cuban American community, or the Israeli American community, or any other community that comes from elsewhere or feels the heritage and the pride and the culture and the language. And so they're drawn a little bit there and drawn a little bit back. And all that the Dalai Lama has wanted to do, he's not calling for independence. He's not calling for war with China. He says, let us pick our religious leaders. Let us practice our religion and let us, let us practice our traditions, our language, and, uh, and Cuban Americans identify with that. So, Mateo, that's what led me uh, very much, as, before I was a member of Congress, to identify with the cause of the Dalai Lama. And, and that cause has had a lot of variations. You know, before it was independence and a more aggressive stand with, with, uh, with China, but now what the Dalai Lama is all about is autonomy, the freedom to to, uh, follow your religion, to choose your own leaders, religious leaders. And uh, he would like to go back to Tibet. That is the goal. And Cuban Americans, we would like to go to a free Cuba. Yeah. We love this country. And just as the Dalai Lama is very thankful to India for everything
0: that they've done for him. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, the value that democracies have, you know, for people, sometimes, is underestimated by people who live in democracies. Yeah, I think for people from authoritarian countries, I think there is a much better appreciation of the freedom. And you know, have.
2: I love the innocence of the American people because we think a Native American for many generations thinks, you know. Have you tried talking to the authoritarian leader? Maybe if you could make him understand, we are we are so innocent and pure of, of motive and heart that we think that we can negotiate them into freedom and respect for human rights and uh, you know freedom to travel. That's not going to happen. They are authoritarian, one hundred percent, and they will never they will never let go of that power. And anything intimidates them. For for the rulers in China the very presence of the Dalai Lama is an affront to them. It is, oh my goodness, this this peaceful man who wants nothing but to practice his religion is a threat to their power. Can you imagine how insecure this powerful army is that the peaceful Dalai Lama threatens their existence? That is remarkable.
0: It is, and actually they could see that as an opportunity actually for them to gain legitimacy with the Tibetan people, right? Because this is the leader that they respect, that they are linked, you know, they've been linked to these institutions of the Dalai Lama for centuries. So for them to think to just wipe that away or absolutely control it doesn't make sense, even from the political point of view, if you want to. And they will never let go
2: of that because everything is a threat to them and and the peaceful practice of of the religion, they they to them religion is is something so foreign they cannot they cannot conceive of a religious person they, they just cannot to them it's power it's authority and it's military might and a man of peace like the dalai lama threatens their very core threatens them to their very core it's quite amazing
0: it is and so to go back to what you have done while you were in Congress. Actually, you did something very important, not only on your own, but you played a very key role in uh, elevating the stature and the recognition by the American people and the American institutions of the Dalai Lama. I'm talking about the Congressional Gold Medal, which was awarded by the Congress in 2007. And I want to show you a short video before we talk about it. Oh, okay.
2: You are full of surprises. Mr. Speaker, as a senior member of the House International Relations Committee and as a member of the Congressional Human Rights Caucus, I have had the opportunity to meet personally with the Dalai Lama on several occasions, most recently in November 2005 when he spoke to Congress on issues relating to democracy, human rights, and Tibet. Born to a peasant family, His Holiness was recognized at the age of two in accordance with the tradition of Tibet as the reincarnation of his predecessor, the 13th Dalai Lama, and thus an incarnation of the Buddha of Compassion. His enthronement ceremony took place in the capital of Tibet on February 22, 1940 at the tender age of five. A decade later, on November 17, 1950, His Holiness was called upon to assume the position of head of state for the people of Tibet. His Holiness is the embodiment of serenity and understanding. His inner peace and calm demeanor gives us hope that a resolution can be reached on the issue of Tibet. By awarding the Dalai Lama with the Congressional Medal, we are recognizing his lifelong advocacy on behalf of peace, tolerance, human rights, nonviolence, and religious understanding throughout the world. By definition, a Congressional Gold Medal is the highest expression by Congress of national appreciation for the most heroic, courageous, and outstanding individuals. Given the the overwhelming support of this legislation, as evidenced by the bipartisan support of 312 co-sponsors in the House Companion legislation, I am confident that members of this chamber deem that the Dalai Lama is indeed such an individual. Mr. Speaker, I urge my colleagues to join me in voting yes on the 14th Dalai Lama Congressional Gold Medal Act, and with that, Mr. Speaker, I reserve the balance of my time you have surprised me greatly. Now for the audience, they're gonna say, well, who, who was that person talking? Because I'm way younger in that video and I'm way thinner. But I assure you that under, behind all these wrinkles and all these pounds, that was, that's me. <laughs> and, and you're so sweet, Matteo, to show that video. But, but the real hero behind the congressional gold medal, which is the highest recognition that Congress can bestow uh, to an individual uh, is uh, the kudos goes to my wonderful Democratic colleague Tom Lantos. Now, Tom Lantos was uh, chairman of the uh, of, of the House of Foreign Af- uh, House Committee on Foreign Affairs. I was ranking member, meaning I was the top Republican, and uh, Tom Lantos is the only person to have ever served in Congress who was a Holocaust survivor. And that will never happen again because obviously Holocaust survivors are elderly now. He is the only person in history. So he was born in Hungary. And Mateo, we we always, uh, when he was there as chairman and I was ranking member, we would say, is this a great country or what? Here we are, Two naturalized Americans. I was born in Cuba, he was born in Hungary. We both became American citizens. And what committee are we heading? The Foreign Affairs Committee, and we're writing the laws to guide our relations with other countries. That's really amazing. And, but we both had, because of our experiences as political exiles, he felt a great connection to the Dalai Lama, I felt a great connection to the Dalai Lama, and that's why, incredibly, we came together and we said, uh, let's pass this, and and it takes a lot of work because there are wonderful citizens throughout the world who are meritorious of this honor, but Tom Lantos and I worked well together. He was a Democrat, I'm a Rep- I was a Republican then when I was in the House, and uh, it shows that People of opposing parties where different parties can come together. And just like Jonathan, who was a a wonderful uh, uh, support staff for Nancy Pelosi, uh, we work together for the common good. So I was very happy to have done that. And that ceremony was just remarkable. It was lovely.
0: Yes. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that and for reminding us of Tom Lantos. And uh, actually, what you just said about. I didn't think about that—that that you were both, you know, coming from foreign countries and heading the Foreign Affairs Committee. This is a
2: testament. Isn't that just amazing that we're both that yeah. we're both naturalized Americans and we're writing the laws of for other countries and our relations with them? But we had this great love for the Dalai Lama, great admiration for what he stood for. So he is a political exile, Tom Lantos, and me as a political exile. We saw the Dalai Lama, in, you know, he's a religious leader, but we saw him as a political exile, and that's what drew us together.
0: Yes, and uh, as I mentioned before you joined, we shared also with our viewers that we just had an advocacy webinar with the Tibetan American communities. So, I mean, we don't have yet a Tibetan American congressman, but I know that there are... Tibetan Americans who are watching. There are new generation of Tibetans born in this country, maybe not born in uh, in India or in Tibet, who are going to school in the United States, who have a strong connection to their ancestry, to their traditions, etc. What would be the relevance, and what would be your advice to them? What should they do to try to have an influence on U.S. policy? How have you done it?
2: Well, thank you, Matteo. Listen, when I when we fr- when I got elected. Uh, nobody really thought that it would be possible uh, for a Cuban American to actually get to Congress. That was, you know, when we first got here. I got to the United States when I was uh, in 1960. I was eight years old. We never would have thought that that would be possible. So maybe the young people, or or, or the parents or the grandparents who are listening to us now, you've got a youngster at at home who's proud of his uh, um, his heritage, his language, his tradition. Uh, his religion, and and don't think that that, that young man or that young uh, woman cannot become a member of Congress because that can make such a difference. When you have somebody who could be a role model for a whole community, you know, whether you're talking about the first black, I'm the first Latina, the first Hispanic woman elected to Congress, I can't believe that, but it's true not just Cuban American, but the first Hispanic woman, you can have the first Tibetan American elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. What that would mean to be a role model for future generations, and also uh, you would be considered a real expert in this field, someone who could lend a lot of credibility and passion and and inner belief to what, uh, what this cause is about. Because the tibetan experience and the political exile that it has entailed and the authoritarian nature of the of the of the chinese regime that's got to be that's got to be known but no one can do it better than than a person of that ethnic group the person of that of, of that category so that was true for me, and then Lincoln Diaz-Balart, Mario Diaz-Balart, Bob Menendez, Albi Osiris, uh, Ted Cruz, whose father was born in in Cuba. So it doesn't have to be that you yourself uh, were born in Cuba, and Carlos Curbelo also who served in in Congress. So we started out as one, and then we became a whole colony. And we're so proud that Marco Rubio He is the the chairman of the intelligence committee, the the chairman of the uh, uh, small business committee. I mean, you talk about a leader. Uh, That young man is going. He ran for president just like Ted Cruz did. So we have amazing leaders in the Cuban-American exile community. Why won't the Tibetan-American community do it? You can and you will. And I'm very confident, Mateo, that that, that that young leader is listening to us or his grandparents or his aunt and uncle are listening to this and you will get uh, involved in those issues and it will make a heck of a difference. So having somebody elected from your heritage and your religion and your background can make a world of difference. But. It doesn't mean that you have to be Tibetan to make a difference. Look at Jim McGovern. I don't even know if he has any Tibetans in his district. What a leader he is! Jim Sensenbrenner, another terrific leader. And uh, leaders come from everywhere. And there's something about the Dalai Lama. There's something about him that draws people, draws people to him. And uh, you know, I've got, I've got these photos here from when I, when that great visit that uh, we went on and letters from him, and and of course, uh, it's just amazing. It it has been the greatest joy of my life to have gotten to know uh, Richard Gere, who could do with his fame and fortune a million things, but he chooses to use his fame and fortune um, to talk about the Dalai Lama, to talk about uh, the Tibetan plight, and, and to pass legislation. We, we passed the Reciprocal Travel Act, and now you've got the Tibetan Policy and Support Act. It's You passed it in the House. We've got to get it passed in the Senate. So there's a lot that we can do, whether you're Tibetan or not, to make this a reality.
0: Thank you. And I just want to follow up on, on your answer, because actually, I don't think I'm sharing a secret, but you mentioned Marco Rubio. Isn't it true that Marco Rubio served as an intern you know? <laughs> it is so true.
2: Marco Rubio was an intern in our congressional office while he was a young man studying at the University of Miami. Now, already I could see that he had leadership qualities. And, by the way, if you if you are interested in the Tibetan cause, remember that this tremendous organization that Show that and, and Mateo lead, they have uh, a week-long youth leadership program, Tibet Lobby Days. They have youth internships for Congress for Tibetan Americans. Marco Rubio was our intern, just a, just a, a, a college student. Uh, he was actually a University of Miami law student uh, while he was in, interning with us. And look what he's become. He a U.S. senator. He was first uh, uh, elected to the uh, West Miami City Council, a little town in Miami, and then uh, state representative, and then uh, the, the speaker of the Florida House, and and then uh, ran for the US Senate, ran for the presidency. And I think that Marco will be president one day. I am very optimistic. And he he grew up right here in Miami, the son of, of Cuban uh, immigrants. So you young man and young woman who are listening to us, uh, Get encouraged, think it can happen to you. I know that when Marco was just a young man, he would have never dreamt that he could have achieved such greatness, but that's the greatness that's available for all of us in the United States of America. And I think being a naturalized American gives me that kind of understanding of the greatness of America and the possibilities that are available here. So um, we want to help the people of Tibet uh, we want to uh, we want to do everything that we can to make sure uh, that we can pass the legislation. Uh, the Dalai Lama is such an inspiration worldwide. You know, I and I should have worn my, my wonderful uh, uh, beads that I have in my in my in my wrist. And I have uh, uh, to be in his presence is something that's transformational. And Mateo and Tancho, you, you see him all the time, so you, you're spoiled. And and I don't know if maybe that magic has worn off you, but you know people are standing there, even in the age of COVID. He's got to be careful. Standing in line for days, waiting to see the Dalai Lama. I can't believe we were able to see him at his home in India, in Dharamsala. And uh, it, it was just incredible. What an experience.
0: And he was our privilege to travel with you there and to see also him interacting with you uh, on such deep level uh, from many points of views, I think you nice. see him uh, this uh, quality of being able to connect with people on a human level. You smile a lot. You laugh a lot. I mean, that is He is such a joyful soul,
2: isn't he? People think, oh, the Dalai Lama is going to be very serious. He's serious because he prays a lot. But when they meet him, he totally disarms them because he's joyful. He's happy to be alive. And he's always talking about inner peace. And, and uh, if you follow him on Twitter, who would ever think the Dalai Lama is on Twitter? But every he's got I don't know how many followers. Uh, he's a man of peace, but a man who understands a human being who understands the joy of life, and and I think that's why when people meet him, they're just, wow, he's so nice. They who who. How many people do you say that about? I don't know. Who, who's a religious revered person like the Dalai Lama? So I wish him uh, a lot of health, and uh, I know that it's uh, it's difficult right now when we're thinking who's going to who's going to follow. And the Chinese government, the Chinese regime, says they're the ones who will choose the next Dalai Lama. No, they, we cannot we cannot have that sanctified by by the world. There's no way that we can allow that.
0: Yeah, and, and thank you for sharing that and for being so uplifting. I mean, this is a tough time for everybody, right? Because we are going through this pandemic and we are you know stuck at home for many, many months. But actually, if we start thinking you know, about also other people, and you think about the Tibetan people, who have been basically in lockdown for 60 years, because this is the occupation that started at the time, and you cannot travel to Tibet freely, they cannot get out. They now seal the border with right. Nepal. They can't even be refugees, you know, escaping, uh, because the, the, the border is sealed. And if you, if you look at this experience of the people and how they have maintained a violent approach to their advocacy, you know, how is it easy for people to resort to violence, you know, when you're frustrated, you're angry, you don't see, you know, any solution, you don't have any hope. And to be able to nurture hope, I think this is a teaching from the Tibetan tradition that serves the world. And so actually in helping Tibet, I think we are also helping ourselves.
2: That is true. That is a healing process for ourselves, uh, not to accept the inevitable. We're not talking about that, but that people can be ever hopeful, that they can keep praying, That they're optimistic that a change is going to happen and that they know that change will happen because we have spiritual leaders like the Dalai Lama who believe that change is possible, who believe that human beings can change and that the evil communist regime can change. I wish I shared that optimism, but... uh, I I know too many too many bad people in the world and I, I don't know they they don't have the goodness of the people at heart but the Dalai Lama does and those who believe in the Dalai Lama have that in their hearts as well yeah, but I know that be- trip for me I mean, the many times that I've met the Dalai Lama have been incredible. Every time that he has come to Washington, Mateo, you know how he's revered and loved, and there's just hundreds of people, thousands of people waiting to see him. He cannot possibly see everybody uh, who wants to see him, but he'll have a big meeting and he'll talk to everybody. And uh, and now with COVID, it's very difficult, but he's doing the best that he can uh, through Twitter and and, uh, and and these kind of virtual meetings, uh, because the world needs healing. We need physical healing from COVID, but we need a spiritual cleansing and a spiritual uh, cleaning. And uh, and and I thank the Dalai Lama for what he represents uh, for for the world: hope, perseverance, and and peaceful contentment.
0: I want to, before we open for questions, we're going to get some questions from the audience. I just want to go back to your message to the, you know, Tibetan American community. I think it was so powerful what you said, you know, just a few minutes uh, earlier. Um, But I know, and I don't know if it's the same for the Cuban American community, but there are many young Tibetan Americans, for example, that they are studying international relations. Mm -hmm. Is it a coincidence? Mm, I don't think so. I think they want to have, you know, they want to play a role. They want to find a way to serve the wrong people in a democracy in this country. So what would be your advice to these young students who are going to college or they're trying to find a way to, you know, to influence government? It doesn't need to be necessarily politics. Any area of government is relevant to shape policy. So what would be your advice to these young people? Well,
2: what you said is so important, any facet. Of uh, public engagement in the political sphere is important. You don't have to be a candidate. You don't have to run for office. Uh, but there's so many there's so many ways that you can influence American policy toward China or American policy toward Tibet, and and uh, you know in in your own college and in your own group, uh, in your own dorm. If you're if you're listening to me now and you, and you're in a university in a dorm or or you belong to a group. You can influence so many people. I, Mateo, I think people underestimate the power of a single person. You know, a single person can change and move hearts and minds. Uh, we can we can have such an amazing transformational power. You know, somebody will tell you something or you overhear something in an elevator or subway and it'll stick with you and, and it'll have great relevance. So I'm encouraged by the number of uh, of young people who are studying international relations and political science and human relations because these are people who are optimistic that a change is possible, that people can change, that you can open up hearts, that you can open up minds. So I encourage you first as a former teacher, I know the power of education and the Dalai Lama knows it as well. I am in no way comparing myself to the Dalai Lama. I'm just saying we share some traits He values education, he values reading, he values prayer, and that's what young people who are studying in our colleges and our universities are doing. Um, They value uh, education, and you get to study different cultures and different modes of thinking. And you think, oh, well, all I've known is this, but look, look at the way that these folks are looking at this problem. So education, whether you go in in a specified organized curriculum or whether you educate yourself, because you can certainly do that just as well. That really has a transformational experience on someone to open a book and to learn about another culture and to look at the social strife and the racial strife that we're undergoing in our in the United States of America right now that's opening up eyes and hearts and minds you know we had not really uh, looked at this problem of the uh, of the inequality of our society and the systemic racism so it's been very you know in, in, in a terrible situation but it's been helpful in that in that respect that it's opened up People's minds, and so you don't have to be a registered student at a university or belong to a member of a political cl- club or organization. You can do that on your own, and and you can learn about other cultures, learn about other activities, and 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 adapt uh, adapt to that, and say, okay, I don't agree with it, but now I understand this group a lot better than I used to. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, and also for. Connecting the dots between you know the social justice causes that you know we as citizens we live in our own countries and connecting those to what's happening outside in the outside world and how this is relevant and how this cannot be you know completely disconnected. I think that's a very very important message. Just a word from you on what. Constituents, not only Tibetan Americans, all American citizens can do to help Tibet with Congress and with the with the legislation. We have now legislation in the Senate. It's called the Tibetan Policy and Support Act. What do they make a difference when constituents engage with members of Congress?
2: Absolutely, like I say, never underestimate the power of a person uh, to move mountains. It's really possible. Uh, and just because we're now virtually does not mean that it makes the lobbying uh, less. No, not at all. In fact, I think we're more interconnected now because it's more accessible. Washington is far away for most people. They can't afford to fly there or drive there. Uh, and where are you are going to stay? It's a hotel or you're going to sleep in the car or something. I mean, it's a costly enterprise to lobby Congress now it's so much better because you can do it virtually uh, you can uh, you can do online petitions those are very important uh, and important is pen and paper uh, and, and writing and and writing out what uh, what you want to do uh, not just uh, not just a petition also uh, you know, since I can't see you, I'm looking to see if maybe I should be doing something else. I'm looking at my phone saying, I, I can't yes. see anything, so I, I worry about that I might not be, you might no, not no, be. No, no,
0: we can see you, we can see you.
2: Oh, yeah, okay, you so everywhere. virtually, I think, Mateo, is yes. even better now because Washington is now accessible to all. Yes. You can you can ask for an appointment virtually with a member of Congress, uh, You and staffers, remember, just because you're meeting with a staff doesn't mean that you're it's a less of an appointment no staffers are the ones that get things done i know i depended heavily on my staff and you saw pictures there of our trip uh the most of the folks there were our staff members so it's important to uh it's important to engage and i think now with covid when we're doing things virtually it gives us all an opportunity all you need is all you need is an iphone or whatever it is you have a flip phone and, and you can connect to a member of Congress, a U.S. Senator's office, the staffers. And uh, what we want to do now, you know, and I encourage everyone who is listening to me, we're gonna have a big session. Uh, right now they're in session for a little bit, but past the election, From November to January, that's when Congress does a lot of work. That's called the lame duck session. It means that whoever's there, maybe they won't be back. Maybe they lost their election in November. They won't be back in January. So between November and January, we get a lot of things done. And we've got the Tibetan Policy and Support Act. That's very important to get it done in the Senate. So if everyone who's listening to me can write that down, that the Benton Policy and Support Act and contact a senator, a senator's office. That's what we want to really emphasize to get that bill through. Already passed it in the House. We need to pass it in the Senate. So just a little bit more of a push and we can get that done. You don't need to go to Washington. You don't need a hotel room or a flight. You can do it virtually. Everybody, Washington is open to everybody now.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Ileana. And I'll call on Tencho to see if we have a few questions from uh, our audience. In the meantime, I want to share also that for people to do uh, what Ileana just mentioned, you can go to uh, www.safetybet.org/tpsa, which stands for Tibetan Policy and Support Act. And there you enter your name, ZIP code, write your message if you want. If not, there is a pre-written message, and the the petition will go to the Senate offices asking them to co-sponsor the Very
2: important, Matteo, and repeat that again. That's very important, this contact. You think that people and senators don't pay attention to it? I was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives for 30 years. I can tell you, these communications make a difference.
0: What is that? www.savetibet.com dot o r g all right you to you
1: sure thank you that was um a wonderful conversation thank you we learned uh, a lot we got a lot of comments um online, thanking for the conversation and thanking thank you for you. your support, um, we don't have, uh, we didn't have that many questions, but I see Thundup here from one of our online uh, Tibetan community participants, I think yes. has the question. Yes. Yes. So again, thank you for your support and I hope that that you will continue to stay involved and engaged uh, with the Tibet movement. My question is, in the Tibet Policy and Support Act, uh, Section 2 talks about the Tibet negotiation. And I'd like to hear from you in terms of what exactly, uh, if possible, some specific examples about what the U.S. government can do to pressure the Chinese government to enter into a negotiation. Uh, I understand the importance of lobbying, but I'm just trying to get some specific examples of what. The U.S. Government can do to promote the dialogue?
2: No, you're so right. What an excellent question. Uh, one of the things that uh, that we should be doing is, to, of course, to have a special representative, somebody who will, we know we've had them before, who can really uh, negotiate to see what is possible. And that has not happened in, in a long time. But we have a lot of tools And we can uh, pressure the administration, whether it's a Republican administration or a Democrat administration, to appoint appoint individuals in the State Department or outside the State Department, whatever department they want to be in, who will have it as their sole responsibility, uh, the status of Tibet, uh, religious freedom for people who want to uh, practice the religion of the Dalai Lama, to make sure that uh, they can be autonomous, in a non-challenging way, no one is saying we're going to beat the Chinese army. Wish it were possible, but it's not. Uh, and and so we need we need to have these high-ranking individuals uh, be responsible for the policy based on the input from all of the communities. So I think that's the part that's missing right now, whether it's a Republican or Democrat administration. And that's what the, that's what the bill that we're pushing for. The Tibetan Policy and Support Act wants to do to have someone at a high-ranking uh, category who will have direct access to the president and whose sole job, whose sole responsibility, is to advocate on behalf of Tibetan autonomy, respect for religion, uh, uh, the ability to pick the religious leaders, and uh, ultimately, of course, to return to Tibet, their homeland. But at the very, at the very least to have one person in charge of of the policy on behalf of the United States government. I
0: I can, Tancho, because, uh, I mean, Tondo's question, I think, brings up another one. You know, now the the question of U.S.-China relations is very much at the center of the political conversation. Actually, actually it's becoming almost partisan, which is a little bit worrying for us who are working in a bipartisan way. But if we go back, actually, to the uh, end of the 90s and the early 2000s, there was this big debate in Congress about granting the, you know, trade permanent status, favor nation status to, to China. And Congress, for many years, had pushed to try to have human rights and labor standards connected to any trade deal. Now, we have a feeling now that the wave now is a little bit shifting, that, you know, for many years people thought, just with economic engagement, China will change. Now we see that there are people who have been really now frustrated to see that China hasn't made any progress, and also they didn't uphold their commitments on trade issues as well. So do you think that, you know, making a strong case for connecting human rights standards to trade could also help moving the negotiations on Tibet? Because that would be part of the package.
2: Absolutely, Mateo, I wholeheartedly agree. I think that when the United States does trade deals where human rights of that country are not first and foremost, we are a lesser country for it. This gives us an incentive to put pressure on other countries to improve their human rights records. And I'm not saying that the United States is perfect, of course, we're not perfect, no one is, and no country is. we're doing a lot better than, I mean, when you compare the United States to China, oh my gosh, with what they're doing to the Uyghurs, to the Muslim community, to uh, to the Falun Gong, to, uh, to, to Tibetans. I mean, this is atrocious. So I agree, we need to do trade deals that have human rights elevated as a theme and we need to show the world that this is what the United States stands for, and I, I regret a lot of the trade deals that we have done that do not take human rights into consideration. And uh, and I congratulate previous administrations when they have had the courage to to face the the premier of China and have brought up the issue of autonomous Tibet. That takes a lot of a, a lot of guts. And in fact, you'll see the premier actually physically. Uh, move his body so that he gives the, uh, um, the cold shoulder uh, to the, an American president who does that. So the Chinese authoritarian evil regime will show its disdain uh, to any country that brings up human rights. What does that tell you about the authoritarian Chinese regime? Uh, they, they can't, they don't, they don't want to defend their human rights record. To them, the individual does not matter it's only the masses and what they can produce to make sure that they can continue to have a strong army and threaten their neighbors and even a holy man like the dalai lama is a threat to the aggressive chinese uh, uh, authoritarian regime so human rights must be at the forefront of any uh, trade negotiations that we have and and uh, for a while there as you point out mateo it was most favored nation status and then you know, normal trading status. You know, we we play games with these titles, but what we need to make sure that we always maintain um, a principled stand on is that we, as a nation, stand for human rights. We believe in human rights, and and we will not enter into trade agreements with countries that have uh, ill treatment of their of their citizens based on their religious belief or any other any other factor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Eliana, um, and thank you, Matteo. Both. Um, I think we have to. Uh, we've come to the end of our session now. Um, Time goes by fast. Yes, it went. I apologize for the earlier technical difficulty we had. We had locked the meeting, and um, but well, uh, no. thank you so much.
2: I can I can get easily confused with technology, but we managed to get through this. I can't yes. believe it. I'm very happy no, that we did. It,
1: Thank you. We miss your energy and we miss having your office that we go to all the time.
2: <laughs> well, you are so sweet. I, mean, so I love that. You. Serving in the House almost 30 years, I loved every minute and being a naturalized American, I, I could never get over the fact that I had the opportunity to help shape U.S. policy toward other countries. And I've always felt this great kinship to the Dalai Lama. So thank you so much for making this trip, that my last trip in Congress, uh, such a meaningful one, and to have gotten to see the Dalai Lama where he lives, where he prays every day, and to see the school and everything that we were able to see in those magical days. It was just, it was just unbelievable, and I will treasure those moments forever. I want to thank every one of you for for listening to my da, 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 jabber on, and and thank you so much for the opportunity, Tencho and, and uh, Matteo.
0: Bless you. Thank you. And before you, you go, I just want to mention, because I know you have been watching also some of the previous Tibet talks. Yes. So I, the next guest is going to be a surprise also for our viewers, but also probably for you, because he's a new member of Congress, and then maybe you want to talk about him a little bit, you want to oh, mention? Yeah. yeah.
1: Yes, so uh, our next guest is Congressman Andy uh, Levin. He's a freshman from, um, he's a freshman in Congress elected in 2018, but he studied at the Central Institute for Tibetan Studies in Varanasi, India, uh, for a year, and uh, he's traveled to Tibet, and he says his experiences in India, Tibet, and China are one of the reasons why he's on the House Foreign Affairs Committee now. <laughs> so he'll be our guest uh, uh, next. I
2: have enjoyed your sessions. I've watched them on your Facebook page, and I've, I've seen Richard Gere, Greg Craig, Paula Dobryansky, Mateo, Yu chan I've, I've watched so many of
1: them, but I look forward to viewing this one of the congressman. Thank you so much. Thank you, and on behalf of all of our Tibetan participants also today who had a chance to meet you, I want to thank you also for that. Thank you, and we took a lot of your time. No, I enjoyed every
2: minute. Thank you so much.
1: Just wanted to mention that, Iliana,
0: because I know we, you know, you left Congress, but, you know, we got, you know, this is a Democrat from Michigan, and he has this personal experience, so you you need to know that there will be someone there who will continue you know to carry on what you have done in the in the house for. i am place
2: so place. glad to hear that and i look yeah. forward to watching him in your yeah. in your great series so tell people how to get on that series because they're really terrific uh, presentations much better than hearing me blab
1: bless you thank all you. thank you thank you so much thank you Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Here's our next upcoming talk will be September 24th with Congressman Andy Levin. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and don't forget uh, uh, Congressman Eliana ross today said, never underestimate the power of a person. So go online and take action. Visit SaveTibet.org slash Tibet 2020 and uh, join the online campaign. And we'll see you next Thursday, September 24th. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode
0: of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at SaveTibet.org pod find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit SaveTibet.org support. Thank you and see you next time on Tibet Talks.